0: Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night, depending on when you're tuning into this. Wes and I are praying for you all. We miss you all. We are doing our best during this season, not just to produce more content, but to foster connection. Um... Many of you probably have been some part of uh, a video conference uh, during this past week. We're encouraging all of our small group leaders to get creative in the ways that they gather online. Uh, We recognize this is probably, it's not probably, it is more clunky than if we could gather face to face. But I think you'll find if you can get over the hurdles of the technology and and put up with a little clunkiness, I think you'll find that um, meaningful connection is possible in a video uh, conference or, or in a, a chat of some kind on a phone call, it's certainly better than nothing. Um, along with that, as I mentioned, we all have our phones. Uh, I personally hate talking on the phone, and I probably shouldn't say this, but uh, I don't even really like talking to my wife on the phone, and she doesn't like it either. She'll tell you that because I'm a difficult person to talk to on the phone. I just, I just don't like it, but I'll be honest with you. I have had some really rich and meaningful phone conversations uh, over over this past week, called a couple people. Just had some um, some good connection over the phone. So if you're feeling lonely, or as you're spending time doing whatever it is you're doing around the house, you're praying. Maybe the Lord brings a person to mind from our church. Do me a favor and, and honor the Lord. Don't just pray for that person and don't uh, pick up the phone and, and text Wes or I to call that person. Get on our website and. Uh, Click on the, the little link that says Church Directory. Look up that person's phone number if you don't already have it and give them a ring yourself. Um, give them a call. Reach out. Let's do what we can to, to leverage technology to really try and stay connected and to love one another well during this period. Let's continue to look out for one another. Make sure that we're, we're being as connected as we can be uh, during this time of social distancing. And I know I, I hate that word as much as everyone else does, but <laughs> that's what we're calling it. So that's what I'm calling with it. Calling, calling it. So, so bear with me in that. We'll, just, uh, we'll continue to hang together, try and love on, on one another during this time. As uneasy and as uncertain as it has been, I want to encourage you as a church to see this as an opportunity. Suffering is hard, I get that, but it's also an opportunity because the darker that it gets out there, the brighter our lights can shine for Jesus. And just by way of illustration, I wanted to, to uh, let you in on a little interaction I had uh, pa- this past Sunday. So I was helping my in-laws move. We decided it was time to grab something, grab a bite to eat. So we went to a local well, I actually we ordered it, take out, obviously, and I, I went to the local establishment. And as I'm waiting for our food to be prepped, i kind of just struck up a, a conversation with the owner. That's the only two people that are working right now are the two owners. No one else was there, so they're doing everything. And I just said, hey, how's your business? Are you guys going to make it? And he said, I don't know. You tell me. And he seemed really discouraged and really overwhelmed. And so I just asked him, I said, you know, um, do, do you believe in God? And he said, Yeah, I do. And actually, um, I love Jesus. And so at that point I, I asked him if, if I could pray for him and for his business. He said, Sure, absolutely. And so I did. And it was amazing to see in that moment. It wasn't wasn't the the best prayer, I'm sure, but I just prayed for him. I prayed for his business, pray that God would bless them, that that they would uh just have peace during this time, and it was amazing to see his his total demeanor change. It was almost like you could see the Lord just dump some peace and some some joy, the joy of Jesus over him as as I was praying for him. It wasn't much, but it was an attempt to share the hope and peace that I have with someone else during this time. And so, church, you have peace. You have hope. In fact, I, I think the church right now and Christians are peace dealers and hope dealers. You've got peace, you've got hope. So be thinking of ways that you can kind of deal that out or pass out that help, pass out that peace to a world that desperately needs it right now. OK, so that's my spiel about the whole lockdown and the corona thing. Let's get uh, beyond that a little bit. Let's move into our series for this week. Last week, we checked in on Jesus in the upper room, and we looked at the holy day known as Monday Thursday. And today, we're going to look at Good Friday. And I, for one, could not be more excited about it. I'm excited because I'm what what people would call a church rat. I grew up in the church. I was born to to Christian family. I grew up in the church. I've never not been a part of a church. And I've also spent a lot of time and, um, sadly, a decent amount of money on uh, college education and some of those things to study the Bible. So, you would think that as much time as I was having church and much study as I put into to studying scripture, that by now I would know it all. I don't think that, but uh, sometimes, sometimes it, it feels like uh, I, I don't come across that much new stuff. But this week, I did. This week, I discovered something in the text that I've never seen before. And that's why I love scripture so much. I love the Bible so much because it's so deep, and it's so wide, and it's so rich. I could spend the next 50 years studying every day, preaching to whoever, preaching to everybody and their brother, right? I could spend 50 years doing that, and there will always be new things for me to learn. There will always be new things for me to discover about who God is, because He is infinite, and He is vast, and we can never delve the depths of of the richness of who he is or the richness of Scripture. And it's one of the reasons why I enjoy being in Bible studies with new believers so much, because they just bring such a fresh perspective to the Scriptures. They bring ideas and thoughts and perspective on the scriptures that sometimes I've never thought of. So let that be an encouragement to you. If you're young in your faith, if you're a relatively new believer, please do not hold back in your small groups or in your Bible studies. Your perspective is immensely valuable, especially for the folks who've kind of grown up in the church and, and think they know it all, right? You can, you can point out something that they may have never thought of, and it can be a tremendous encouragement. So don't hold back your, your perspective and your thoughts as you gather together online or or face-to-face when we can get back to gather together. So, I discovered something new in our text this week, and I'm really excited to share it with you. It's a great truth. But before we get to our text, and we're going to be in Matthew 27, verses 45 through 53 together. I'll have some slides, but I encourage you to have your Bibles out to take notes and do all that stuff. I want to say a word before we get into the text about Good Friday. Now, I know I can't be the only one who's thought this before, but why in the world do we call it Good Friday? Good Friday wasn't good. It was horrible. What happened on Good Friday was gruesome. An innocent man, who also happened to be the creator of the universe, was murdered in one of the most grotesque way possible. The people that he created, that he loved, they're the ones who murdered him. And they did so with hate in their heart and also kind of some glee. They were happy about it. They were glad to be rid of him. So Good Friday seems like it would be called something other than good. Now that was my take going into this study. However, after spending some more time in Matthew 27, I realized that good is a great way to describe this holy day. And here's why. There are six miracles that happened on the day Christ was crucified. And although this was a terrible time in the life of Jesus, it was and remains to be the best thing that could have ever happened for us. Because of Jesus' willingness to lay down his life, he will forever be exalted and glorified. And for those who believe in him, we will be able to enjoy his glory and share in his eternal inheritance with him forevermore. It was... And is indeed a good Friday. So let's read the text together. Matthew 27, verses 45 through 53. It says this From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema Sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. And immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to new life, They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many. Okay, as I said, there are six miracles that we can see that happen in the last short hours of Jesus' life here on earth. This outline of the text is not new to me. I often read articles and maybe listen to a few sermons. I most certainly read commentaries from time to time as I put study in, and the. The outline that I came across in John MacArthur's uh, commentary on Matthew was immensely helpful. He pointed out these, these six miracles, and so I kind of just ran with it. So never want to plagiarize. I'll credit him for the outline. Most of the thoughts are mine in here, um, but I'll cite him if I, if I reference him at all. So we're going to look at six miracles that we can see, and hopefully you'll be encouraged during this time by, uh, by examining the, the miracles here in the text. So the first miracle we come across is found in verse 45. By now, Jesus has been on the cross since about 9 a.m., and that comes from a reference over in Mark 15, verse 25. The text then tells us here that after three hours, he's been on the cross for three hours, at noon, the sun went dark until three in the afternoon. So three hours, the sun went completely dark. Complete darkness fell across the land. Now, I always grew up thinking that this was probably just an eclipse or something like that. There's not really anything supernatural about eclipse, right? The moon goes in front of the sun or vice versa, depending on what type of eclipse it it is. We experience them them from time to time. But after reading this week uh, and researching a little bit, I discovered that astronomers have done the math and they've kind of looked back through the astronomical calendars. It turns out the sun and the moon would have been too far apart at this point in time for there to be an eclipse. So, while eclipses do happen, at this point in time when Jesus is on the cross, no such alignment was possible between the sun and the moon, which means God did something supernaturally. He did something supernaturally within the universe to cause the sun to be hidden from view. Now, the text doesn't tell us how widespread the darkness is. It says across the land. We don't know how far across the land, but some historians during this time period have recorded that such an event did take place and that it was a worldwide phenomenon. Obviously, it would only be the world that was light if it's the opposite side of the world. So, in the, the one half of the hemisphere that was lit up, apparently went dark. Now, this miracle tells us two things. The first is that God's judgment was taking place on the cross you read the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, darkness, and more specifically, the darkening of the sun is almost always associated with divine judgment. So here we discover a physical piece of evidence that what the prophet Isaiah wrote of happened when Jesus was crucified. Jesus did indeed receive the judgment and punishment that our sins deserve, symbolized by the darkening of the sun. He was crushed for our transgressions, Isaiah says. Now, that's amazing, but what I want to really highlight here is God's and Jesus' power. They control the universe. It's no small feat to cause complete darkness to fall across the land. We might be able to achieve some limited kind of darkness, right? You can go in your room, shut the blinds, turn the light off. We can do that to a certain degree, but what this text tells us is that God, that Jesus, he has the sun on a light switch. The sun. I've talked about this before in some of my other messages, but the power of the sun is ridiculous. It's ridiculous how much energy is stored in there. You can't just turn it off, right? It's mind-boggling. And yet God has the sun on a light switch. Don't think for a second, church, that this coronavirus has caught God off guard. It hasn't. God is in complete control of the universe. He's got the sun on a light switch. The second miracle that I want to point out is kind of less less obvious, but it's no less important. In verses 46 through 49, we're told that Jesus cried out about how God the Father had forsaken him. Now, to be forsaken, it means to be abandoned or deserted, to be forgotten, to be left alone by ourselves. In In fact, Jesus quotes a portion of Psalm 22, which maybe you want to pause this and go read it. You should read it Definitely, write down Psalm 122 and read it at some point. Read it in light of Christ's crucifixion. It's amazing. As you read it, remember that it was written more than a a thousand years before Jesus' crucifixion. But back to the point. Jesus cries out that the Father has abandoned him, meaning something happened within the triune Godhead. You see, we here at Crossroads believe in the Trinity. Our denomination believes in the Trinity. It means that we believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We believe that there there are three distinct persons making up one divine essence. And that we believe that the persons of the Trinity experience community and fellowship together. They have a perfect loving relationship with, with one another. We believe that it was out of this community and this love that they decided to create the earth and us. They created us to share in their fellowship with them and reflect their glory back to them. They experienced and have experienced relational fullness and fellowship. It's one of the reasons why this whole social distancing and the isolation that many of us are experiencing right now, it's one of the reasons why it's so hard for us. You see, we were created in this triune, the, triune, the trinity, we were tri- created in God's image. Which means we're created to enjoy relationships like God enjoys in and among himself as trinity. I know that's mind-boggling. It is, but just wait, it gets even more crazy. On the cross, something terrible happened. It's a mystery. It's a mystery that we'll never be able to fully wrap our heads around. And I praise God for that. If you serve a God that you can put in a box and wrap your head around, your God is too small. Our God, the God of the Bible, is not too small. He's mysterious sometimes. And what happened on the cross here is very mysterious. Something that we can't comprehend Jesus, the divine Son, was somehow separated from God. He didn't cease to be God, but somehow that fellowship, that union, that loving relationship, that community was broken as the furious wrath of the Father was poured out on the sinless Son. As Jesus became sin for you and for me, there's separation that happened. Jesus was forsaken, he was abandoned by God the Father. It's a mystery, and it's also a miracle. For it is by these stripes that you and I are healed. This is the punishment that has brought us peace that was laid upon him. The father turned his face away from the son so that he could turn his face upon you and upon me. This miracle teaches us two things. The first is, that God is sovereign over history. If you notice, I quoted a little bit from Psalm 22 and also from Isaiah 53. Both of those texts were prophetically written thousands of years before the crucifixion and they describe the crucifixion verbatim. God knew the future then and he knows it today. Nothing escapes his gaze. He is in control, steering history towards his ends. We can and should take comfort in that. And the second thing I want you to see is that Jesus knows what it's like to be abandoned, to be left alone. He knows what it's like to be forgotten, to experience a break in fellowship. He knows loneliness like none of us ever will. This means we do not have a priest, we do not have a Savior that is unable to sympathize with us, in our weaknesses, in our loneliness. We do not have a God that doesn't understand what it's like to walk in our shoes. He knows. Jesus knows. He knows what it's like to be forgotten. So for those of us experiencing loneliness right now because of the whole social distancing thing, Jesus knows what that's like. Far worse. For those who've been abandoned by friends, maybe even for those of you who've been abandoned by a father or a mother, Jesus knows what that's that's like too because he experienced it on the cross. He is able to empathize and to sympathize with us when we feel alone and abandoned. He gets it because he's walked in our shoes. He's experienced it firsthand. Thirdly, and again, this is one that you might miss upon the first reading, but it is a miracle nonetheless. In verse 50, we discover that Jesus gave up his own life. It says in, When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. This means that Jesus remained completely in control of his fate from the time he told Judas last week to go and do what he knew Judas had planned to do. And even before that, Jesus' life was not taken from him. He willingly gave his life to be a ransom for those of us who believe. He laid down his life for his enemies. Who does that? He suffered crucifixion, For the people who jeered and mocked him while he was on the cross, before the sun went dark, he prayed to God. He said, God, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Surely there can be no doubt of Christ's love for mankind or his divinity. This is is a miraculous self-giving. And beyond that, MacArthur helpfully points out that the fact that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice demonstrated considerable physical strength. Even after the beatings, even after the scourging where they whipped him with those, the things that had teeth and, and sharp things in it to rip off the flesh, even after the, thorn, the crown of thorns or the nail-pierced hands, even after hanging in agony for several hours, Jesus did not gradually fade away. His life didn't gradually or slowly ebb away little by little until it was gone. No, no. Even now, he made it evident that he was not at the point of utter exhaustion, that he had the resources to stay alive if he so desired. The last words that the Lord cried out from the cross were told in John 19 30 were this He said, It is finished, meaning that the work the Father had sent him to accomplish was complete. And then in Luke 23, verse 46, we're told that Jesus committed his spirit to the Father's hands, and then he died. Jesus died sooner than normal. Normally, soldiers had to break the legs of those who were being crucified to speed up the process of suffocation. If you could still hold yourself up or or just push yourself up a little bit, you could escape from the suffocating weight of your body and your fluids on your lungs. So they'd break their legs. They didn't have to break Jesus' legs because Jesus willingly surrendered his life for our sins. This miracle of self-giving shows us that the Lord we serve is in complete control of himself. He's not just in control of the universe, he's in control of himself. No one gets the best of God. No one is greater or more powerful than him. No one can control him. He's in control of himself, as he told the disciples in John 10, 18. He said, no one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily because I love you. For I have the authority to lay it down, and when I want to, I also have the authority to take it up. That's a God of power. That's a God of sacrificial, self-giving love. Jesus is complete control. He has the power over life and death, and that should give us hope. Fourthly, the fourth miracle is found in the first part of verse 51. There we discover the effects of Christ's death. At the moment Jesus released his spirit, we're told that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, it's helpful here to know a little bit about the Jewish temple or the Jewish tabernacle. This was the place where God dwelt among his people. The temple is divided into three areas. There's the outer courtyard or the upper courtyard. That's where the sacrifices were carried out, where the altar was. And then if you go in the temple building outside, you're in the courtyard, you go into the temple building. The first place you would enter is called the holy place. It's just inside the front doors. And then just beyond that is the most holy place. It's hidden from view by this giant three to four inch thick curtain. It's the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is held. And in the ancient days, where Israel wandered around in the wilderness, where they had the tabernacle, and then later, during the time of the kings and Solomon, they built a temple that was, that was like the tabernacle, but stationary, it couldn't be moved. During those days, it's said that the Shekinah glory, this glowing, brilliant light or fire emanated from the most holy place. Because that's where the presence of God was most intensely located. There in the holy holies, shielded with that huge curtain, separating God from mankind. We could come close, but only so close. And all of Jewish worship was centered around this most holy place. Because that was where God was dwelling most intensely. Now, over the years, you'll know Israel's history. They sinned, they rebelled. In their wanderings, they were rebellious. After they had kings, they were rebellious. And eventually, as Israel continued to sin, God took his presence from the temple. And so the Shekinah glory left. But the worship of the Jewish people still centered around the temple. The thought was, if I want to get close to God, if I want to worship God, if I want to please God, I have to go to this location. I have to go to this building. I have to go to Jerusalem. There was another group of people, the Samaritans. They were sort of Jews. During the dispersion, when God sent all of the Jews out into exile, there was a group of Jews that intermarried with foreigners. And they became kind of a a mixed breed of Jewish people and and foreigners. They were despised by the pure-blooded Jewish people because of that intermarriage. And so because of this, there was huge animosity between the Samaritans, between the Jews, and the Samaritans didn't want to go to Jerusalem. They didn't want anything to do with Jerusalem or that temple. So they built their own. Outside of Jerusalem in Samaria. Now, if you remember, Jesus had quite the conversation with the Samaritan woman in John four. If you've seen the Chosen, they do a great job of depicting this conversation. You could check it check it out. I forget what episode it's in, but it's in it's one of the episodes where they they take John four and they set it to film. But there, this woman comes across a, a, or Jesus comes across a woman at the well, Samaritan woman, and he tells this lady that she's got five husbands and the guy she's currently shacked up with is not her husband. And she's surprised by this, that he knows this. She uh, rightfully concludes that he's a powerful teacher. He has some prophetic gifts. And so she changes the subject. She doesn't want his gaze on him too fier- on her too fiercely. She changes the subject and she, she asked a common question that the Samaritans and Jews would argue about. Recognizing he's a teacher of the law and has some keen insight, she thinks she might be able to get Jesus' eyes off of her and maybe get an answer to a long, uh, a long, um, a conversation that had been a long time thing between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so she says, "So, should we worship at the temple at Jerusalem, or is it okay to worship God at the Samaritan temple?" And Jesus' response is beautiful. He tells her, he says, a time is coming where it's not going to matter where you worship. All that will matter is that you do it in spirit and in truth, that you worship in spirit and in truth. And the miracle that we see here, the tearing of the curtain, separating the Holy of Holies from the world, is torn in two, meaning that God can now dwell with his people wherever there is now no longer a right place to worship God. Because of Jesus, we we can worship God wherever. We can worship him him in, in, in the church building. We can worship him in our homes as we watch this video. We can worship him wherever, whenever we want to. This miracle means it's not about a building anymore. Actually, it never has been. And now even more so. The church is not a building, friends. It's a people. It's a people of truth who have been filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and who are now enabled to worship and live for the glory of God whenever and wherever. Listen, I know it's been a bummer that we haven't been able to gather corporately. And I long for the day where we can reconvene our gatherings. We should. The Bible tells us it is important to gather together for worship. It actually commands us to gather together for worship. But for this time, for a short season, in an effort to care for the least of these, I think we've made the right call to remain separate, to put some distance between us. And because of Jesus' work on the cross and this particular miracle, the tearing of the curtain, I remain encouraged. No virus, no amount of social distancing can separate us from the love of God or stop us from worshiping him. Because the place doesn't matter anymore. As long as we have the spirit of Jesus, we can worship him in spirit and in truth. Fifth, fifthly, the fifth miracle is probably the cause of the fourth one. There's a significant earthquake at the moment of Christ's death, death. The second part of verse 51 reads, the earth shook and the rocks split. Now, we've already noted that God is Lord over the universe. He has the sun on a light switch, right? Crazy. That's some power. But God is not just far off and out there in the galaxy. No, He's close. He is sovereign over the earth as well. He can turn the sun off with the flick of a switch and He can make the foundations of this earth shake. That is immensely encouraging to me. See, the Bible tells us that because of Adam and Eve, because of their disobedience, their rebellion, sin broke our world and Satan was given reign over it. That's the reality. Satan and sin are the rulers of this world. The devil is the prince of the air, we're told in Ephesians two two. However, in this miracle, we see that God is still in control of our world. Sin and Satan might currently be ruling it, but God has them on a leash. Now, this gives rise to all sorts of questions that we don't have time to delve into today. Like, Why doesn't God tighten that leash? Or why doesn't he get rid of this virus? Or all sorts of other questions dealing with suffering and God's sovereignty. Those are fair questions. Those are good questions. And there are helpful answers. But what I want us to rest in today is the fact that God remains in control even when sin and Satan sow seeds of suffering in our world. God remains in control over all of it for the believer. He's promised to make the suffering we endure purposeful. We don't have to look any farther than the cross to see this truth. The cross of Christ, the suffering of Christ on the cross, was horrible. It was horrible. And it was driven by Satan, right? It was put into place by Satan, which God permitted. But along with that, God used it to produce tremendous good. It's Good Friday. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus, they are the linchpin. Of all of human history. Satan meant it for evil, but God, in his sovereign control of the universe and the world and your life and my life, worked it out in such a way so that death and sin and evil would be destroyed forever. It's a powerful thing, it's tremendous good. It's fitting we call it Good Friday. Lastly, Lastly, and this is the thing I mentioned at the beginning that I feel like I'd never read before. Upon Christ's death, we are given a foretaste of what is to come upon his imminent and eventual return. In verses 51b through 53, it reads this. It says, The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy temple or the holy city and appeared to many people. What we're told here is that some select believers who had died are raised to new life. But it's not the new life like Lazarus experienced when Jesus stood outside the tomb. He said, Lazarus, come out. And he came out, he came back to, to He came back from the dead, and then he died again. Now, these folks, they're brought to new life, but it's not a new life that's susceptible to death. No, these folks are raised to resurrection life. They're glorified. They received new glorified bodies like that of the risen Christ, which no longer will see death. And after Christ was resurrected, these believers went into Jerusalem to testify to other believers about the truth of what just happened. It's like God putting an exclamation point on the resurrection. He brought some, some few select believers to honor them. He glorified them. He sent them in. He said, make sure people know my son ain't dead. He's alive. It's pretty crazy stuff, right? I can't believe I missed this. <laughs> it was crazy. It blew my mind this week. How did I miss this? This is amazing. How do you read your Bible and miss the fact that some people got to, taste-ified, or got to taste glorified bodies already? I have no idea how I missed it, but I did. And I'm thankful to the Lord for awakening me to this truth afresh here. And here's why. This last miracle of the crucifixion, it reveals that our God keeps his promises, that he has power over life and death, and that he is tremendously good. Listen. If God controlled the sun, right? Has the sun on a light switch. If he was sovereign over the universe, he was in control of himself. No one was greater than him. No one could boss him around. If he had power over the earth, over Satan, but he wasn't good, none of this would be good news. None of this would be encouraging. But this last miracle reveals that God raises people who believed in him just like he said he would do. It reveals that our God is faithful, that he keeps his word, that he does what he says he will do. And I want you to notice these folks, these believers who were raised were dead. Now, that might be kind of obvious. I don't want to be condescending here. But my point is they were dead. They didn't escape death immediately when they believed in Jesus they, or when they believed in God, when their faith pointed, looked forward to the Messiah. They still died. I'm sure many of them died before their time. Maybe they died terrible deaths. I know all of them experienced suffering of some kind because they live in a fallen world. But God never left them. He never abandoned them. He didn't let them stay dead. Because Jesus was obedient to death, even death on a cross, because Jesus the Son was forsaken by the Father, you and I now have the hope of resurrection. And we see a foretaste of that here. Now, we won't be isolated or insulated from suffering, but God promises that if we continue to believe and we persevere in faith like these folks who were raised to new life, even to the point of death, God promises that he will one day raise us up to a new resurrected life that is incorruptible, that will never taste of sin or death again. Now, if that's not a reason to sing some praises, I don't know what is. Church, this is a really unique time in our history. We've never seen anything like this before. It's sure, it's sure to bring some pain and some suffering but don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. I can't think of a more fitting way to close this teaching than with the words of the Apostle Paul in his letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He said this, you see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord. We ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let there be light in the darkness, He has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves were like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. We are pressed on every side by troubles but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned. We get knocked down, but we're not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Christ so that the life of Jesus may be seen also in our bodies. Yes, we live under constant constant danger of death because we serve Jesus so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death, but this has resulted in eternal life for you, for many. But we continue to preach because we have the same kind of faith that the psalmist had when he said, I believed in God and so I spoke. We know that God who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us to himself together with you. All of this is for your benefit. And as God's grace reaches more and more people, there will be great thanksgiving and God will receive more and more glory. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and they won't last for very long yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So, we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on the things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things that, can, that we cannot see will last forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the goodness of of this Friday. Thank you for the goodness that was achieved through Christ's willingness to lay down his life that we might not be separated from you for eternity. Father, let us take hold of the hope that Christ purchased for us. Let us trust in you. You are good. You are in control. You love us and you've done a mighty work to demonstrate that love by giving us your only son, as a ransom for our lives. I pray, Lord, that we would feel your presence, that we we would be comforted by the fact that Jesus knows what it means to be isolated and alone. He sympathizes with us. He empathizes with us. He empowers us to live lives that are markedly different from those around us. Lord, put your peace into us. Fill us with your joy so that we might shine brightly for you let us fix our eyes on the things we cannot yet see, but look forward to when you return. Lord, we're not excited about this virus, and yet I'm thankful for the sign that it is. We don't know the day or the hour of your return, but we know that you said throughout, uh, throughout the ages, that there will be signs of your coming. You'll come like a thief in the night. No one will know the day or the hour, but there will be signs. We take this event in our history as a sign or one day closer to your return. And to that, Lord, we say, come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Until then, make us fruitful in your service and give us joy so that we might honor and glorify you and enjoy you forever. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.
1: Oh, fix your eyes on this one truth God is madly in love with you So take courage, hold on, be strong Remember where repeat the sound all his children clean hands pure heart good grace good god his name is jesus swing wide all ye heavens let the praise go up as the walls come down all creation everything with breath repeat the sound all His children, clean hands, pure hearts, good taste, good God, His name is Jesus. Sing wide, all ye heavens, let the praise go up as the walls come down. All creation, everything with breath, repeat the sound, all His children. Good God, His name is Jesus i